Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Vorst, and I'm your host for the show, as well as one of the pastors at Life Church. And I got an opportunity to preach uh, this weekend, and we talked as we continued in our series called Cross Equals Love. We talked specifically about love and hate, um, as the Apostle John records in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. So we talked through that a little bit. Uh, but if you're just joining us, this is your first time with us, maybe second time, you haven't fully gotten connected or engaged with us yet, I want to invite you to subscribe to this podcast so that you can get regular updates uh, about things coming up as well as about other podcasts and get connected in that way. Um, you can also go to our now page. It's lifechurchcanton.org slash now to get connected in a variety of different ways. And then lastly, I want to invite you, if you've never given to Life Church or given to any faith-based organization, um, we believe that we're getting to be a part of the work of the kingdom that God has invited us into. And that takes uh, a lot of time and effort and a financial investment as well uh, from all of those who participate. And so if you would like to give, uh, I would love to uh, to have you do that. You can go to lifechurchcanton.org slash give in order to start investing. Thank you so much. And now here is me with a sermon on love and hate. Welcome to Life Church. Welcome to anybody watching online. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm excited to continue us in our series called Cross Equals Love. There's a whole lot to get to, but before I do, I just feel like I need to mention this. Uh, There's a lot going on with March Madness. Any fans, March Madness fans? Uh, Okay, two. Uh, Great. We have uh, an office pool that we put together, and I won't tell you, but his name rhymes with Avid and starts with a D, and he is in dead last. Oh, he's already off stage. Good. Uh, nope, he's right there. He is in dead last. Can we just make that known? Okay. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. I love this season. I like college basketball. There's a lot of excitement, but also I just love spring and the warmth that's happening. And then I love the season that we experience as we get ready for Easter. It's why we do this series called Cross Equals Love. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was on the corner outside of our building. If you're an online person, you've never been in person, we're on the corner of Warren and Hegarty. And there's a sign on the side of our building that says Cross Equals Love and real big. And I'm looking at the sign. I'm at the stoplight the other day. And I'm, I'm wanting to like look to see if other people are noticing the sign. I'm wondering, should I like honk and then point to the sign? And then like, that's how I should invite people to church. And then I thought uh, a little bit more profoundly, like, I wonder if people are looking over at the sign and if they see it and they see the cross equals love. And if they're wondering, does it? Does the cross equal love? Or more specifically, does the church equal love? Like maybe the cross does, but does the church equal love? Or maybe even more specifically, do Christians equal love? Love, And I thought, like, you know, could we take out the cross and put an image of, of you or me on that sign, and would the math still equate, would it still compute to the cross equaling love? Do Christians equal love? That's a question I want to ask us this morning. Do Christians equal love? It's an important question for us to ask because uh, back in 2008, there was a book that came out uh, called Unchristian, and this book was written by a pastor and a researcher, and they compiled data, basically, uh, going around asking the question what people thought of when they thought of Christians or Christianity, and the top six responses that they got out of all of their data were this, that Christians are, one, hypocritical, 
They're only concerned with you getting saved. They don't really care about anything else about you. They just want to make you a project. They are anti-homosexual and homophobic. They're too sheltered. They are too politically motivated, and they are judgmental. Top six responses when asked, what do you think of Christians? Let me ask you again, do Christians equal love? It would appear, based purely on data back in 2008, that that's not the case. And, and I think this is actually something important for us to talk about because then we've got to ask, well, how does the cross equal love if Christians are supposed to represent the cross and everything that surrounds the cross? Now, for Christians to answer that question, it's really easy. Well, of course the cross equals love because the cross is where Jesus died to take away the sin of the world, and we use terms like atonement and salvation and forgiveness, and we're familiar with all of those terms. And so, yeah, of course the cross equals love. But if you're maybe not in the faith, new to the faith, on the fence about faith. You may not be familiar with those terms, but you maybe are familiar with the crucifixion of Jesus, or at least the event of the cross. And what you know about it is that it's full of death and violence. So how does death and violence equal love? And then on top of that, if a person who's on the fence about their faith, or maybe even a little bit agnostic in some ways, uh, they encounter a person, encounter a Christian who is supposed to represent this sort of sacrificial, forgiving love, but that Christian fails to do so, then that person who's on the fence about their faith is all the more confused. Now, love actually equals confusion. Let me give you a real-life practical example. Uh, imagine there's a large gathering of people, and, and some of these people are actually holding crosses, like big, giant crosses. And actually, some of the other people are holding big, giant signs that say, Jesus saves. But then some of these people actually go on to attack, physically and violently attack, other human beings. What is a person who is on the fence about their faith? What are they supposed to get from seeing an image like that? Jesus saves and violence. How does that work? Do Christians equal love? See, the reason why this is important to talk about is because this whole series, Cross Equals Love, for us on staff, for us as a teaching team, like this, we want this to be an invitational series. Like this is a great opportunity to invite others who are maybe on the fence about their faith, to invite them into this and to understand what love actually is and what the cross actually means. And yes, it's important to define love. And we've tried to do that throughout this series. It's important to talk about things like atonement and salvation and forgiveness and all of those things. And, and it's equally important to talk about this idea that Christians as representatives of this mathematical equation that the cross equals love. Uh, we have to ask, are we any good at it? <laughs> Has anything changed since 2008 and the data that we just read through? Are we any good at it? Are we good at loving one another? Life Church, are we good at loving each other? See, because John is really concerned about this, and that's the letter that we've been looking at, First John, this is a letter written to uh, probably not just one church, but it's a letter that got circulated around to multiple churches, and he's very concerned with how they love one another. I want to read from 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, just a little heads up, it's going to mention brother a couple times, but I want you to know, sisters, you're very much part of this letter and included here as well. Verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belongs to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Let's talk about this just a little bit. There's, all throughout the scriptures, there's, there's different literary styles, different genres throughout this you know, massive book. And at times we encounter things like maybe in the gospels or maybe in some poetry where there's some nuance and we kind of have to wrestle through what that means. But then there's other times in the scriptures where there are very clear set distinctions. This is one of those times. In fact, you mentioned, uh, Daniel mentioned this last week. If you didn't get a chance, go back and listen to his sermon from last week. But he talks about this whole letter is actually about these distinctions. There's, there's comparing and contrasting going on with light and darkness and death and life and love and hate. And now we have children of God and children of the devil. Now, that phrase, children of the devil, in, in this first part is maybe a little bit confusing for some of you who are newer to the scriptures, newer to the Bible. Maybe that conjures up images of like this little red demon guy with horns on his head and a pitchfork, and that can be really confusing when you're talking about children of God and children of the devil. What exactly does that look like? So I want to give us a slightly different image that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. And he talks about knowing who you belong to or knowing who you are based on your fruit, so you know a tree by its fruit. If I see oranges on a giant plant, well, they, I assume that that's an orange tree or a lemon tree or an apple tree, right? We know a tree by its fruit. Very simple illustration that Jesus gives us. Essentially, what John is doing is saying, we know who you belong to by your fruit. And there's two things, your actions and your love for one another. So we should love one another. <laughs> this is the message we've heard from the very beginning. Is what he says in verse 11. We should do that. We should actually do that. Now, of course, like, that seems like a reasonable response for John to give. But there's more going on here that we might not necessarily see. We gave some of the context of why this letter is written. So on one hand, the church in the first century is very much persecuted in this world. Uh, the Roman Empire is in charge at the time. They want nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, they want to stamp out the message of Christianity. So they are persecuting the church. They're getting attacked from the outside. But also what's happening specifically to the churches that John is writing to is they're starting to get in, uh, attacked from the inside as well. There's some Roman and pagan influence uh, intellectually speaking, they, they had questions and concerns about, well, is Jesus really the son of God? Is Jesus really the way to God? And they were pushing back on that sort of exclusionary message. They had concerns with it. And so there's an intellectual attack from within. What is John's response to this, to this new attack that's starting to infiltrate the church? Well, you know, craft a really good intellectual debate. We should love each other. That, that's what we should do to combat this new infiltration, this new attack. 
We should love each other deeply because how we love one another and how we act are actually going to be the barometer for our belonging. We're going to know who you really are if we genuinely love each other. And he takes a turn in verse 12. He starts talking about this figure named Cain and what we assume is Cain and Abel. For those of you who are newer to the Bible, he's referencing an ancient story all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. It's a story of Cain and Abel, the firstborn children from Adam and Eve. And Cain and Abel are farmers and uh, Cain is in charge of the crops. Abel's in charge of the livestock. He has sheep. And what happens and what's very common in the ancient world is individuals would offer up a sacrifice to their deity, in this case, Yahweh. That's what they called God at the time. And so Cain and Abel are about to offer up sacrifices. Now Cain brings part of his crops, his, his, um, his agriculture, and uh, Abel brings livestock. He brings the firstborn of his sheep. And what we find out is that God favors Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't even pay attention to Cain's. And there's been a whole lot of debate about what that means and why that is. And you know, some would argue, well, oh, livestock, I mean, that's much more valuable than, than crops. Like, that, that's why God appreciated that. But that's not necessarily the entire case. I mean, God isn't looking down on Cain's profession caring for the crops. It's equally as important. But there's another argument out there, too, that would get at the motivation of Cain's heart. There's some scholars that would say that Cain gave sort of the refuse of the crops. It wasn't like his best crop. It was the stuff that you would just sort of throw away in the garbage disposal or the compost pile. Like, it's the leftovers. But Abel offers up the firstborn of his sheep. It's valuable, which shows the condition of Abel's heart versus the condition of Cain's heart. God is looking for devotion in this story. And all of that is sort of assumed. John writing this to his audience, they're, they're, they would have understood probably the, the connection here, the context of this story. And then what happens in the story is Cain is jealous of his brother Abel. He develops a seed of hatred and ultimately kills his brother. We get the first murder in the scriptures. John is setting up this illustration to talk about the gravity of hatred. Hatred brought to its fullest expression is murder. And in some cases, ends actually in murder. Jesus actually takes it a whole step further in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't even call your brother an idiot or a fool. Don't have hatred in your heart for your brother because ultimately, no matter how big that seed is and no matter how big it grows, what it might as well be is murder. Let me ask you a question, Life Church. And you watching online, do you have any hate for anyone? Hate within you for someone else. And let me ask a follow-up question. How is that panning out? How does that work itself out in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, maybe even your actions? John is concerned with how we actually behave. Do we hate people? Do we love them? Don't be like Cain. 
and his evil actions, his motivation. God is concerned about what's going on in your heart. Then John takes yet another turn. Now he begins to talk about a different form of hate. He says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. So there's something to think about in terms of, well, why does he start talking about that? Are we to assume, just because he came off talking about Cain and Abel, that the church is like Abel, the righteous one, and, and the world is like Cain, the evil ones? Is that how we are to understand it? So if we're righteous, well, of course, the world would hate us. And they're like Cain. Is that how we understand it? And there's some truth to that. We could think about it in that way. I want to give us a couple other ways to think about what John is trying to communicate here. I think it's important first to talk about the context in, uh, in which this church finds itself 2,000 years ago. Very different than what we experience now in some cases. So, so they were absolutely hated. We've already established that. The Roman Empire did not like the church. They persecuted the church. They were hated for a variety of different reasons, but it might be easy, us, easy for us to think, well, they hated the church because the church was religious. But that's not necessarily the whole picture. See, they were religious, but to the Romans, they actually weren't religious enough. Roman society, Roman culture, Roman empire, they were extremely religious. They believed in many gods. They even believed that their Caesar, their political leader, their empire, uh, emperor was uh, in, of himself a divine figure. He was a son of the gods. So worthy of worship. So in that case, then they actually think the Christians are sort of not super religious at all. Because the Christians refused to worship any other gods. They were hated because of their exclusivity of worship to Jesus, the Christ. So they were hated for what they were against in some respects, but they were also hated because of what they were for. So the early church had radical compassion, radical hospitality. hospitality. They shared their possessions with anybody who had a need. They didn't feel that what they owned was their own, and they just gave things away. But also, they took care of the outcast and those on the margins. All of the people that were, that were slaves, that were women, that were children, who were orphaned, uh, people with sicknesses, they brought them in and they cared for them. And in some cases, the church even got sick themselves, but they still continued to commit to caring for these people, regardless of what happened. Radical compassion and hospitality. And they were hated for that. Why? Seems like a really wonderful thing to do. But again, Roman society is very different. Their mindset is survival of the fittest. So if you are issues, if you're sick, if you're on the margins, well, it's because the gods put you in that place. You deserved it. So, so if you're sick or diseased or an outcast, I don't want to be associated with you because then the gods might get upset with me and then I might not get what I want. So for the church to come alongside and take care of these people, it was like an offense to Roman society at the time. They're hated for what they're for. Let me ask you a question. The church in 2021, are we hated for the same reasons? If people look down on us because we just, we care for so many people, we're so radically hospitable, are we hated for that reason? Based on the, the data of 2008, maybe not so much. I mean, 
We could argue that we're probably hated in some respects for our message of exclusivity of Jesus, right? Like, I, I get that that's, that's got to be a stumbling block for people who are on the fence about faith, that Jesus is the only way to God. Yeah, that, that's a hard message to swallow. But are we hated for what we're for? I, I think based on that book that I mentioned earlier, it seems like most people... Most of the world knows us for what we're against, that we're bigoted, we're nationalistic, we're judgmental, we're homophobic, we treat people like projects. That's what we're known for. Has anything changed from 2008 to 2021? What's been the biggest difference? How would we know? Well, we have to look at our fruit, right? We know a tree by its fruit. What is our fruit? Well, the fruit is most visible on social media. That's been the biggest increase or biggest change since 2008. Let me ask you a question. If you were to look at your own social media, for those of you who utilize it, in the last, I don't know, week or so, would you say that your posts and your comments have represented an invitation to the love of Jesus? Does it look like Jesus? Now, I'm I'm not talking about some of the posts where you post pictures of your dog or your cat wearing some coat or your avocado on toast or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the conversations, the interactions that you engage in. Is it seasoned with the love of Jesus? I, I think I know the answer. Because I see for it, I see it for myself, and I think this is an area where we just can't seem to get this one right. And this is, hear me, this is not an attack on social media. I don't think social media is the problem in and of itself. I think it's our relationship to it that has to be assessed. And make no mistake about it, everything that we do and say is on display. It's on display. Everybody sees what we do and say and how we respond to things. If the world hates us, I don't blame them because of how we have responded to crisis in our world or have not responded in some respects, how we have stayed silent on some matters as well. We have a long way to go in this area. And and it plays out like this because it actually has real life implications Let's imagine it in this way. If I go ahead and go on my social media platform and I start getting into an argument or a debate with somebody who I disagree with, and I'm just going to town and I'm making sure that I find all the ways to make sure that they know that I'm right about the thing that I'm posting. And we're going back and forth, back and forth, and then eventually, later on, a couple days later, that person who I'm in an argument with decides, you know what, I haven't been to church in a long time. I think I'm going to go try a church. You know what, I'll try Life Church. And then they come into these doors, and then they see my face, and they remember the argument that they had on Facebook with that guy, and now they see him up close and in person, and then they look at me, and in a matter of seconds, they realize, oh, I know what that person stands for. That must be what this church stands for. And they turn around, and they walk right out the doors because they want nothing to do with the church. This happens all the time. And we wonder, why doesn't anybody want to come to church? Yeah, maybe the cross equals love, but do Christians? Do we have any sense of empathy and humility in our conversations with people? Or do we just cowardly hide behind a keyboard and just type whatever comes to mind? My concern 
is that we are more informed by our freedom of speech as American Christians than we are being formed by our freedom in Christ. Those two freedoms are extremely different from each other. One is rooted in entitlement and the other in empathy. We have a ways to go and a ways to grow. And so I want to ask another question. For those of you who would consider yourself followers of Jesus, so if you don't, you kind of get a pass for this one, okay? But for those of you who would call yourself a Christian, are you hated for the right reasons? Seems like a weird question to ask, doesn't it? We're going to be hated no matter what. John says, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if the world hates you. When the world hates you, they're going to find a way to hate you. But are you hated for the right reasons? And how can we know? How would we know? Well, it's important to look at our standard. What's our standard? Our standard is Jesus. We've said that line before. Our standard is Jesus. So let's look at an experience of Jesus. There's a variety of experiences that we could look at, but let's look at the one having to do with the cross. Since we're in a series called Cross Equals Love, let's look at the cross. The cross is the result of the culmination of all the hatred and the vitriol and the anger that is experienced in a single moment. There's many groups that don't like Jesus. They don't like what he does. They don't like what he has to say. There's the religious leaders who are extremely uh, concerned with what Jesus is saying. There's the Roman Empire who are concerned that there could be an uprising based on the followers that Jesus is gathering. There's a concern from the zealots who believe that Jesus is too wimpy. He's just not going to take over militaristically. He's not, he's not a real passionate political leader, and he seems like he's sort of a sellout. So all of these groups, they actually all hate each other, but now for a moment in time, they find a scapegoat in Jesus. They're unified under their hatred towards Jesus. And all of their hatred leads to murder. They crucify him. And Jesus willingly embraces it. Now some of you still might be asking, okay, but I still don't see how that's loving and again, the Christian response is, well, well, that's how we get the forgiveness of sins. And that's where salvation comes in and atonement. And, you know, Jesus died to take away the sins of the world. And that's fine. But you might not subscribe to that. Let me give you another way to think about it. Jesus, in a moment of utter despair and pain and suffering, as he's on the cross, cries out and says, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? And at first, it seems like a confusing thing for Jesus to say because don't we preach that Jesus is God? Yes. God in Christ enters into the pain and the suffering of the cross. And he begins to expose the sham that it is, all of our violence, all of our hatred, the ridiculous, ugly nature of our sin and our brokenness is all on display for the whole world to see. God willingly goes there and enters into the utter depravity of our humanity. He goes there with us. God chooses 
to enter into our pain and our despair and our abandonment. That's why the cross equals love. It's a different kind of power. It's an upside-down sort of power. It's not a God who is up in the clouds, who stays far away and looks down at us and hopes that it all works out. It's a God who says, I will come to you and I will actually go into the same circumstances that you experience every single day. The pain, the loss, the heartache, the brokenness. This is who our God is. This is what he does. This is what he enters into. I want you to think about the moments in your life where you have experienced great pain and despair. And maybe there's people that came alongside of you and and tried to comfort you and love you in very specific ways. Maybe there's some who tried to say all the right words or maybe they they even gave you a Bible verse or they gave you a, a poem or something like that. They just tried to do the right thing in that moment of pain and loss. It was fine. The intent was good, but it just... Maybe it didn't really do anything for you, but then there were moments where somebody came along and they just sat next to you. They just sat with you in your pain. They didn't try to quick hurry it and and, and fix it and, and just move on. They didn't try to convince you about all of the ways that, hey, everything's gonna be okay. They just sat with you. They wept. They sat with you in that despair. This is what God does on the cross to identify with humanity. There's another story, a man named Elie Wiesel is a Holocaust survivor and he recounts of a story when he was in a concentration camp and I apologize, the story is maybe just a little bit graphic and so I won't keep all of the details but he recounts of a moment where they're all outside, all of the prisoners are outside and they're executing, they're hanging a young boy. And a man shouts out in the crowd and he says, where is he? Where is God? You can imagine everybody's depressed, everybody's agonizing, or maybe some are just numb. And then in a moment, they're, they're forced to walk past where this boy is. And he's still dying. And the man shouts out again, where is he now? And Elie Wiesel remembers he wanted to say, he thought this thought. He's here. He's right there. It's a different perspective of how to think about God. God is right there in the ugliness of death and the loss and the pain and the abandonment. He goes there. This is our God. This is what it looks like to say that the cross equals love. And John goes on to say we have moved from death to life which means death is a part of the story. We sort of ebb and flow throughout this, all of our lives, death to life, death to life. We follow this sequence of Jesus, and it's in these moments where we actually meet the love of God in the death and in the pain and in the suffering. 
We experience it only so that we can recognize how great life truly is. But we don't just rush to it. We sit in this darkness for a time. And this is how God identifies with us. All the hatred, all the anger, and especially in a world right now where there is extraordinary hatred against Muslims, against Jews, against black and brown people, and now an increase, a substantial increase in hatred and violent acts towards Asian Americans. They have become the new scapegoat because of COVID. We, well, we've got to find somebody to blame. And now my wife, who is part Asian American, will rarely go out in a public space, but when she has, she has been extremely distanced by people because of what she looks like, just beyond the six feet of social distancing. And then, this last week, we hear of another tragedy, another mass shooting in Atlanta, and we find out what has happened, and, you know, this young man, person, describes what he's doing and why he's doing it. And we could talk all about that, but the thing that sticks out to me the most about this young man is that he was raised in the church. He's raised as an evangelical. He's baptized. And we wonder why nobody wants anything to do with the church. We have an opportunity, brothers and sisters, to love each other deeply, to enter into the pain and the suffering of those who are on the margins, of those who are on the receiving end of so much hate and prejudice that they can't breathe anymore. And we step into it with them in solidarity with those who feel the abandonment and the loss. This is actually an opportunity feels like a burden at first to talk about it, doesn't it? This is an opportunity. This is what we are invited into. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be part of that. John says, don't be surprised if anybody hates you. In fact, we've moved from death to life because of our love for one another. See, death is part of our story, but it's not the end of the story. But it does, in fact, inform our love. For one another, which is why we step into the suffering of others. We must. This is what we've been invited into. And I tell you what, I'm not going to lie, there is a cost to this. There absolutely is a cost to stepping into the hurt and pain of others. The early church felt it. They were persecuted for it. They were hated for it. They were hated for the right reasons. And I'll tell you, we have begun to incur this cost as well. Because our love for one another. I want to ask you one last question. When is the last time that you had an opportunity to step into, to come alongside, to enter into the pain of another? Without trying to fix it, without trying to move them along, without gaslighting them and saying, actually, your pain isn't really pain. Or without trying to protect your own reputation in the process. When's the last time you truly entered into somebody else's pain and suffering? We have an opportunity. And I want us to grow in this kind of love. 
And I believe we can. I believe that we can get to a point where people drive past our building, they see that big old sign that says cross equals love, and they say, you know what, I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I know people from that church, and absolutely they love me. So yeah, I believe that. I'd love for us to get to that point. And maybe we already are on our way to that point. Maybe you have come because you met somebody from Life Church and they just loved you well and so you wanted to come check it out. We're so glad you're here. And we can continue to grow in this way. I think about from my own experience, I think back to eighth grade, the summer after eighth grade, I went to a Bible camp. I had a really unique experience with my faith. I made it my own. I said yes to Jesus in a brand new way. It was exciting. Felt like the presence of the Holy Spirit was in my life. But then I went back to school. Went back to high school and nothing really changed because I never really cultivated anything within my relationship with God. And it just was back to business as usual. My interactions with others didn't really change. There, there were some kids in our school, and, and maybe you have kids like this too, and maybe students, you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. There were these kids that just had a target on their back. Everybody just kind of joined in and making fun of them. I can remember specific names, Mark, Sarah, Drew, Charlie, all of our school just picked on these people. And I joined right in with no remorse. And I look back on that experience and I think, did my faith mean anything at all? Was I really only concerned about just saying a quick prayer because I was concerned about the afterlife and not necessarily concerned about the eternal life that John talks about? Listen to this. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. If eternal life is in me, it should play out my interactions with others. I feel like I missed an opportunity to step into their pain and their hurt. And yeah, I could, I could justify it. I could use excuses like, well, my brain wasn't fully uh, you know, uh, prepared or developed. I didn't have my prefrontal cortex ready to go. I could make all of those arguments. But really, really my faith should have informed me, informed me and transformed me to change the way that I interacted with my brothers and sisters. Life Church, we must love each other deeply. I want us to grow in this love. And so I want to give some practical ways to do that, even this week, starting today. And lucky for you, they all start with E, okay? So you're ready? You can remember them. I want us to examine, I want us to enter, and I want us to engage. What do I mean by that? Examine. I want us to examine our hearts, yes, but maybe when I was talking about social media, that perked your ear just a little bit. I want us to examine our social media. If you are, in fact, engaged in social media, whatever platform it is, I want you to look at your posts, your comments. I want you to ask yourself, was I inviting people into the love of Jesus? Or was it something else? There was an article that came out recently about this uh, the psychological phenomenon of social media, specifically in the last couple of years, and what people are sort of saying to themselves to make themselves feel better about their interactions on social media is not so much, well, uh, yeah, I'm being hateful or I'm being divisive. It's not that. They're excusing what they write because what they convince themselves of is, well, I'm just, I'm right. I, so I don't, I don't see what the issue is. Like, I'm, I'm right. 
And in my rightness, I am fundamentally good. And the person that I'm arguing with is wrong, so they're fundamentally bad. And, and this is how we justify it in our brains. So, so I'm doing them a service. <laughs> this is what psychologists have come to learn when they interview people who just engage in this kind of behavior on social media. But I want to ask us, are we, do we have any empathy, any humility in the way that we treat our brothers and sisters? Everything we do and say is on display. Let's examine. Secondly, let's enter. Enter into. We have another opportunity to enter into something where we actually enter into another experience of the cross. The cross is something that is scary and dark and it has moments where not everything makes sense, not everything is awesome. For all of Friday night and the whole day of Saturday and into Sunday morning when Jesus is buried, he's died, he's crucified, he's buried, we have an opportunity to enter into that. And the church for several thousand years now has celebrated this with Good Friday. So on April 2nd, on Good Friday, from 6 to 8 p.m., we're going to have an opportunity for you to come here in person and enter into that experience of the cross. Enter into the darkness that it is because death is part of our story. It's not the end, but it is part of our story and it begins to form our understanding of what love looks like. And it's why we can say the cross equals love. Mark your calendars for that day. And then lastly, engage. I want us to engage someone. Invite them into this experience as well. If you haven't already thought about who you might like to invite to Easter, to invite them into the hope that comes from the resurrection that is true love, invite them. We have these little handouts, these postcards with a section where you could just write a personal note. Make it personal. Hand it to somebody and invite them to be part of this. As I was speaking earlier, maybe some of you, maybe you are on the fence about faith, about Jesus. You're not really sure what this all means for you. But maybe, maybe that description of God, where God is actually on the cross, identifying with you and your pain, and your brokenness, maybe that hit you in a new way. Or anything else that I said. I want to invite you to step out in faith and to step into a relationship with God. Maybe in a brand new way or maybe for the very first time. And so if that's you watching online or you in the room, I want to invite you to pray along with me. But would you all stand together as we pray? God, we sang earlier, lead me to the cross where your love was poured out. And so here we are. And for those of us who don't really know you yet, we're stepping into something new. It's a little bit scary and maybe even a little bit confusing, but God, we pray that you would hold us, that you would comfort us, that you would begin to transform us from the inside out. 
God, we belong to you. We want to belong to you. And in that belonging, we want to learn what it means to love others. Teach us how to love where we have not loved well so we can continue to be a force for good in our community and in our world. We love you. Well, thank you once again for listening to this podcast, listening to this sermon, and uh, we pray that it it hits you well. Uh, A message on love and hate is never easy to process through emotionally and spiritually, mentally perhaps, and so um, I pray that you take those those three practical steps to examine, to enter, and to engage, um, and find ways to really creatively love our brothers and sisters especially in a world where there is so much hatred going on. Uh, We have a love that is eternal, that is lasting, um, that's powerful. And so uh, we want to engage in that. We want to invite others to engage in that as well. Um, Thanks again for listening. If you want to find ways to get connected, uh, more practically speaking, you can go to our now page. That's lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And that's where you're going to find the most up-to-date information on what is happening at Life Church, as well as ways to get connected. Thanks a lot and have a great rest of your day.